May God, may God bless you for, uh, for your work this week in all of that heat, as uh, Jesse alluded to. Uh, other thing uh, I, I would mention before we pray this morning is uh, tomorrow morning, uh, my son Jordan and I and Wayne Rushing, we're headed to Israel. And we are going to leave tomorrow morning and we'll be back the following Tuesday. And ask that you pray for us as we, uh, we meet up with 24 other people in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who are going to be... They think we're traveling with them. They're traveling with us. <laughs> it's the 24 plus the three hombres from San Antonio that are going to Israel. And uh, I would ask that you, uh, you pray that that turn out to be just a great, great trip and a great, great experience for all of us. Uh, we're going to talk about hypocrisy this morning. What we were going to talk about this last week and didn't because we chose to, uh, to think about some of the race and racism issues in our nation. And so we're going to tackle that this morning. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me as uh, we ask God to bless us during this time of study. I, I keep thinking of the words of this song, Father, that we just sang about the rescue from heaven, the, the redemption of sinners, and it all begins and ends in Jesus, our Messiah. And we are grateful, 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 Father, for, for not only being forgiven, but to be changed into the humans we should have always have been and were created to be, but can't be, Father, because of the fallen world and our own fallenness, but we're thankful for all of the different angles and ways that you come streaming into our life to change us. And we pray, Father, that as we, we study your word this morning, that you'll give us insight into it through eyes that see and ears that hear in such a way that we become whole and wholesome in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And the church said... <coughs> I want us to uh, open our Bibles up to 1 John chapter 1. And I want us to consider uh, some of the things that the Apostle John writes towards the end of his own life to churches in the area of Turkey that, that, uh, that I, every time I reflect on these words, I, I find them to be stunning. Beginning in verse 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In God there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk, that is, we live in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then we, we drop down to, um, to, verse, to verse 3 of chapter 2. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, 
and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in him, that the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The NIV would say, verse 6, this way, if we say that we are in him, then we should walk as Jesus walked. Now, one of the things that we looked at last week, as I, I mentioned earlier, is that uh, we live in a world in which, you know, racism is, is a fact. It is, it is a fact of life. And the reason for that is we live in this fallen world. We live in a world where we sometimes, it, it just seems that the, the fallenness is not just on the outside, but it's, it's just everywhere that we look. And one of, one of the effects of sin in the world is that it, if you want, a, if you want a, 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 just a little word that will give you a, a pretty good theology of sin, think of the word division. I mean, sin is obviously not doing what is in God's uh, God's will. It is not obeying his commands. It's not living according to his will in, 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 at any level. But the result of that sin is that it divides. If you think about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything is created, everything is whole, there's an integrity to everything. The truth of God is not only evident in the world, in the way that it reflects his glory, but God himself is in the world. We get to Genesis chapter 3 and what happens? There is the sin that enters into the world, and because of that sin that enters into the world, death enters into the world, and what else? Separation and division. God and man are no longer unified. They're no longer in this wholesome relationship. Things are not the way that they had always been since the first day of creation. God and man have been separated, and it's not changed since then. And that's one of the reasons why we talked about race and racism last week, that it is the result of living in a fallen world. What we want to talk about this morning, though, takes it from the outside. What, what's happening because of the division and the separation because of sin, the effects of that sin in men as it drives us apart for a lot of superficial reasons. But sometimes that fallenness and sometimes that sin, I shouldn't say sometimes because it's, it's inevitable and it's, it's completely in us and in the world, is that when it gets in us, that division happens within us. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, the word integrity. We talk a lot about integrity in this world, and, and, it, and rightfully so, because our world is so fractured and there's so much dividedness in our world and in human beings that we need to talk about integrity. But the word integrity, as you know, comes from the word integer, which is, uh, you know, a unit or one. And when you talk about having integrity, you're talking about not just doing things right in one part of your life or one avenue of your life, but when you talk about integrity, it's about all of the parts of your life being unified under one core truth. Or all of the values that you hold to be very, very important in this world, those values apply not just in the business world, but in your relationships. And not just in your relationships, but in your personal life. And not just in your personal life, but in every area of your life, those core values and those core truths are what govern you. You're not divided, but you're coming together, and what you see is what you get. Now, this is an issue that all human beings have to deal with. And uh, I'll give you a, a, a personal, kind of a personal anecdote or story about how this affected me. Uh, as you know, uh, family moved from Texas uh, when we were in our high school years. 
uh, we moved up to Washington, D.C., and uh, I had a lot of friends, and, uh, you, you know, every, every boy at some point in life enters into the knucklehead years. And you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you're a knucklehead for X number of years, and sometimes you're a knucklehead for the rest of your life. And that's what we call the guys. You know, if it's a girl, we call it drama queens. You know, <laughs> you know it cuts both ways, right? Knuckleheads and drama queens. That sounds like a country and western title. We should work knuckleheads and drama queens. That's, that's going to be a great country and western song. So during my knucklehead years, we end up one evening in Washington, D.C., down in the downtown area. And uh, we're walking around, and out of the blue, one of the guys I'm with, there's only about four or five of us taking the subway into D.C., walking around. And there's this, this, this gigantic statue that, you know, is about 15 feet up in the air uh, at, at the very top of it. And as we're walking by it, one of the dudes says, I dare any one of you guys to climb to the top of the thing and touch the top of the head. I didn't even think. Thus a knucklehead. I climbed right up to the top of that thing and patted it on the head and came down. It was an utterly foolish, dumb, dumb, dumb thing to do. But as I have reflected on that, I have noticed that there was a lot of irony in that moment. You know, one of the high values when you're a knucklehead is that you don't want anybody to know that you're afraid of anything. The high value is fearlessness. And I was afraid that somebody might think that I was not fearless. See the irony? But, at, but that's kind of a pedestrian thing. At the deepest level, I was doing it because I wanted to impress some dudes. I wanted to impress them and make them think about me and what I'm all about in a way that really wasn't at the core of who I am. I just wanted to impress them. And it was at that point, and reflecting on it later, that I began to see that the seeds of hypocrisy were already being sown into my heart. That it was possible for me to put on a facade, for me to do actions, for me to behave in such a way or to talk in such a way that it would give people the impression of something that I was not on the inside. And we're going to spend some time this morning thinking about hypocrisy because Jesus spends a lot of time talking about hypocrisy. And one of the first facts about hypocrisy in the Bible is that when Jesus talks about hypocrisy, he's normally and usually talking to people who say that they follow him. Now the first thing we need to do is kind of come up with a definition of hypocrisy because you find definitions all over the place. It's kind of muddled in our culture. The first definition, if you were in, I guess on some search engines, if you were maybe to use Google and to Google the word hypocrisy, up here on the screen you find a definition. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not uh, conform. And so basically you have a definition of hypocrisy, which by the way I don't agree with, but it's a definition of hypocrisy that says that if you're guilty of something you can't condemn it in somebody else. And so you think about that and you go, okay, well that, that sort of makes sense. But, but here's the thing. Is someone, for example, someone addicted to drugs who knows without a shadow of a doubt how dangerous and how enslaving and how sufferable that life is, 
is that person who has first-hand knowledge of the danger not allowed to tell someone else there's danger there. Many of you have seen the show Scared Straight. You take some, some kiddos who are on the edge of juvenile delinquency. Their trajectory in life is not all that great. They take him into a prison to talk to inmates who are in there, some of them for life, about life inside of the prison. And what is the message that those who are in prison are trying to tell those who are on their way to prison? Don't come here. So this is, I don't think that this is a very good definition of hypocrisy because basically what it's saying is, is that it, it, you can only teach the level of morality or learning or experience that you yourself have attained. I think there's a better definition. The, the, the second definition, I want you to write down on your outlines, it's this. It's the contrivance of a false appearance of virtue or goodness while concealing real character or inclinations. Now I want you to circle those words contrivance and concealing. What hypocrisy means is that you're efforting deception. And the word, as it was used during the time of Jesus, and it was used even before the time of Jesus, had to do with actors. Uh, an actor in the, in the time of Jesus, in antiquity, they would put on a mask, and they would want you, by the, what was on that mask, to convey a message or to communicate to you what that character was all about. And, and Jesus, by the way, who grew up in Nazareth, his father was a tectone, which meant that he was a carpenter or somebody that worked with, with, uh, with hard substances. There was the, the capital of Galilee for the Romans, just north of Nazareth, walking distance, that was being built and, and constructed at this time. And very possible that, that Joseph and Jesus were walking from Nazareth to Sephora to, to, to do the work of stone masoning, uh, masoning and, and building in that time. And that's where Jesus would have seen firsthand for himself the idea of a hypocritas someone who puts on a mask to make you believe something that they are not now you know there's I, I can give you another illustration of how this works I, imagine a house you know hypocrisy is not a house in disrepair it's not hypocrisy is not a house in disrepair but it is the house that slaps a coat of white paint on itself to hide its flaws in order to convince you that it's in pristine shape. Now one of the metaphors that Jesus uses to try to teach about hypocrisy and how he should be jettisoned out of the life of a disciple is that he talks about these Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, you know, the Pharisees are very, very righteous people. They do a lot of things, but they don't really know God. And the result of that is they look good on the outside, and he uses the term tomb or sepulcher, a place where you, you, you bury people. He uses the metaphor or uses the illustration of a tomb. He says that kind of religious life is, 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 is condemned by God because it is hypocrisy. He says it looks good on the outside like a tomb that's been whitewashed. It looks clean, but on the inside, what's inside of the tomb? dead men's bones. Now there's a reason why Jesus has to talk about hypocrisy the way that he does. The first reason, two issues, the first issue is this, inauthenticity. That is just, just, just faking the faith is killing the witness of the kingdom of God. Inauthenticity is killing the witness of the kingdom of God. 
there was a book that was published some years ago entitled Unchristian, written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. Third chapter of the book is, in their research, the third chapter is, is, is given to this notion of hypocrisy in the faith. And they write, it's up here on the screen, what does it mean to be a hypocrite? At the core of the perception that Christians are hypocritical lies a debate about what hypocrisy means. In the most basic terms, hypocrisy occurs when you profess something that you do not really believe. For instance, it is not hypocrisy when a pastor preaches against a sin with which he is struggling. Yet, anyone who says one thing and seems to do another is subject to the label. Now they go on to say in their research of young people and millennials and, and, and folks under the age of 40, 45, what they go on to say in their research is that the hypocrisy that is perceived in Christianity is not something that, that this younger generation gets extremely upset about. What it has taught them to do is to not care. It's not to care one iota. That in this world people cannot be depended on, you are going to be disappointed. No one should expect people to be different. Which tells me that somehow the transformative message of the gospel has been ignored. That part of the gospel has been completely ignored in either uh, their experience of it or our demonstration of it. But one of the things that the gospel says is, yes, there is a God and he has provided a way for you to be forgiven. But the gospel continues and says, because you have been forgiven, you are being transformed. The word sanctified is used throughout the New Testament, that you are being made by the work of God, his spirit and word, and, and the accountability that you have in the church family. You are being made into a person that looks like a mini Christ. That's why John says to the church in, in, in Turkey, he says, if you say that you're in him, you have to walk like him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after listing all of these, the, the, the vices and, and the destructive nature of, of people outside of the gospel and outside of a relationship with Christ, and how it was not only destructive to them, but it was destructive to the community at large and to their family and to everybody else they knew. He says in verse 11, and that's what some of you used to be. But you were what? Washed. You were what? sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Part of what Paul was trying to remind the, the Christians in, in Corinth about was, you know, yeah, there was a certain lifestyle that you had. Everybody knew it because you lived in a fallen world and, and the gospel was something that you had not had an experience of. But now that you have had the experience of the gospel, it's not just what you believe about God and the fact that you've been forgiven. What it means is that you are being changed by God and God's Spirit. And he starts to list all of these ways in which they lived outside of the will of God. Some, some really, really terrible, addictive ways and enslaving ways of living. And he said, you know what? Because of being washed and justified and sanctified by Christ and the Spirit, that's what you used to be. Meaning that when people see folks who have experienced the gospel, 
they see a different kind of a human being. Somebody that looks like the Christ. Now it's not something that happens overnight. The transformation is not something that happens quickly. The deeply ingrained habits of sin are not easily dislodged, but they do become dislodged. The language of the New Testament, primarily of Paul, is that it's botanical and horticultural. It's, it's, it's like being planted in the right kind of soil. And with the right kind of watering and sunlight, there are things that begin to blossom in your life that blossom in places where you did not even know that you had buds. And it looks like fruit. And in the end, when you put all of that fruit together, what you have is somebody that looks like the Christ. A disciple knows that God's Spirit and God's Word and God's church are a dynamic combination in changing us into little replicas of the Messiah wherever we go. And so for a person to not be hypocritical but to live with spiritual integrity means that the person you are in the pew right now is a person you are with your wife or your husband. It's a person you are with your children. It's the person you are at school. It's the person that you are when you're at work or in the neighborhood or at the HEB or the Walmart or the Target. To have that kind of spiritual integrity that John's talking about, where in God there is no darkness, He is light, and that if we say we are in Him, we walk as, as the Christ walked, that's what it means. That person that's in the pew right now, that's growing and, and concerned and efforting spiritual transformation is the person that's seen in the community. But there's a second thing. Hypocrisy includes a personal liability. And here it is, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. To what? Be seen, say it with me, by them. Now that's the warning. The warning is, hey, be careful about the motivation. Be careful that you're not doing these things just to be seen by men. Here's the liability. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now if I read these verses correctly, what he's saying is that if your motivation to do acts of piety, of righteousness, is that you know, you're going to get the praise of men. What he's saying, if that's your motivation, if that's how you're operating, then there is no reward for you in heaven because you have received it here. You see, the context for that warning is that he has already told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, you know, let your light shine before others that they can see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus understands that in a fallen world there's a temptation to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And one of the wrong reasons would be for us to be able to get the thanks instead of God rather than God getting the glory. Now granted, that's a, that's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, at some point, we have to deal with the fact that there's a, a level of greed or fear or anxiety or, or whatever inside of us that when we do, do these good things, we want to be recognized for it. Jesus is saying, the way you live your life has to reflect the, the value of God in your life in such a way that people see the God that has that value in your life. The temptation is for us to do something kingdom-oriented and good and it not be for for our Savior, but for us. 
And then he gives three examples. One is charitable giving. He says, you know, when you give, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, don't announce it with trumpets. One of the things that was happening in the first century is as people would go into the temple area, there were these copper or, or brass-shaped coffers that would come out from the wall, and they looked like trumpets. And when people came to give alms for the poor, to give their taxes to the temple, or to give money in general to the temple, what they would do, and I mean you can imagine this happening, as they're pouring that money, in the metal money, onto the brass or the copper trumpets, what was happening? Ding, 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 ding. And people were probably used to hearing that. But then all of a sudden it's ding, 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 ding. And people always say, what in the world is going on? And they look and they're paying attention to the guy that is giving money. I mean, is God against charitable activity and giving? Absolutely not. But it's to be done in such a way that it reflects how you perceive God in your own life. And then the second example is prayer. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who like to stand up in front of people and they like to be seen for their prayers. Again, God is not against public prayer. Christ prayed in front of people all the time. Again, the problem is the motivation. It's to be seen by others. I mean, just imagine, you know, at the end of our assembly this morning, you run down the street here, access road to the Bill Millers, Grab a bite to eat with your family for lunch. You notice that there's a lot of people in the lunch room, and a lot of them look like they just come from church like you have. And so you clear your throat, and you make an announcement. Uh, we need to pray for our food, everybody in the dining room. Let's bow our heads, and you say, God, I thank you for Bill Miller's. I especially thank you for that sweet tea that comes in a bucket. I also am thankful for this delicious chicken and for the fries. It may not be very crispy, but they're tasty. And for the pecan pie. And oh yes, God bless Bill Miller's. In the name of Jesus, amen. A third example is fasting. It's, uh, it's going without food for the purposes of godliness and recognizing God in your life. He says in verse 16, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. So you have people going to church and, or church gatherings and they're looking disheveled. And you go, what in the, are you okay? And they go, oh yes, I'm so hungry for God, I'm miserable. And Jesus is saying, you know what? People are probably going to think that you're a pretty spiritual guy because not everybody likes to fast. But if you're receiving it, that kind of thanks and that kind of praise for that kind of motivation, for that reason, then you've received your reward. Now, we do this all the time. I mean, why do, why do we do some of the ministries that we, that we do? Is it because it looks good on a resume or it looks good on a college application or it looks really good on Facebook or because you, it gives you something to tweet about in order for people to think about you in a way that you're really not? What Jesus says at the end of all of those examples is you've got to do this in such a way that it's just between you and God. The reason you do it it's because of who God means to you. And you recognize that blessing in such a way that you just can't help but share that blessing to everyone else. You know, people are so fickle. 
You try to impress people all the time and, and you know, the people that you're impressing that one minute are saying you're the greatest thing since sliced bread or, or, or whatever are turning on you in the next. One time Jesus gives the people all the food they can eat. And then he says, you know what that really means? And if you really want to follow me and you really want to know what this is about, you've got to understand that, that you have to eat me and drink my blood. You have to take me into your life. That this bread will perish, this bread doesn't. And they turned away from him. The last week of his life, what happens on Sunday? He's riding that colt in through the Golden Gate across the Kidron Valley into the Temple Mount. And the people are throwing down the, the, the palm fronds and they're putting their cloaks down and they're saying, Hallelujah, Son of David, blessed you, all of this stuff. And they recognize him as the Messiah. But just a couple of days later, they're saying, Give us Barabbas. I want you to think about this statement for the rest of the week. The only applause that matters is the applause of God. The only applause that matters is the applause of God. Everything you do motivated by your understanding of who God is. Everything that you do understanding what God would want you to do to help that person in need. What, whatever it might be, the only applause that matters is the applause of God. We're out of time. In fact, we've gone over a little bit. And so I want to close right now. We're going to sing this song that is an invitation. It's an opportunity to praise. It's an invitation to praise. But it's also an invitation to share things that are on your heart. Uh, some have already shared some things. We've, we've gotten the prayer requests through yellow cards and, and through text messages. But if there's anything else that you would like to, to share with our congregation or things that you would need, baptism or counsel or prayer, whatever they might be, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And while we're singing this song together, Come down to the front and talk to the shepherds and let's stand and praise God together. The splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide, it trembles at his voice trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all we see how great, how great is our God. And age to age he stands.
You may be seated.